Pages of Pim Better Podcast. What's up, Voyagers? Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 228. And we're going to go back in time today. And we're going to talk about a record and a band that meant a lot to me in my teen years and still means a lot to me today. I really enjoyed doing these music-themed episodes. I am conscious of the fact, though, that I may be mentioning bands or people or venues or things that not everybody knows about. There's not really a niche or like one type of listener for this podcast. We cover everything from all over the world. And I'm going to be chatting about some very specific things with my guests today. So I was thinking about that while we were talking. It actually kind of made me flustered a bit. And I was thinking like, I do this a lot when I have bands on. So maybe what it makes sense to do is to open up your internet browser on your phone or whatever and like take notes. It's like when you read a, a Patti Smith book and she's referencing like a thousand authors and books and works of art and things and you're just like, I don't even know what those things are. And when I read her, I just take down notes and then I just go search for everything. So if you're somebody who's listening that isn't familiar with some of the bands that we talk about, or the people or the venues, check them out. My guest today is Christopher Tsampanakis. I probably just really butchered your last name. So I'm sorry, Chris. You know, I'm in education and <laughs> a little, little teacher trick would be like, uh, Chris T, if the kid has a difficult last name. So maybe I should have just done that here. But Chris sang for a band and sings for a band called Sky Came Falling. He also has been singing in a band called Divider. Both of those bands, you can go to the show notes for this in whatever app you're listening to, whatever player, and I'll have a link to some music. But Sky Came Falling released a record called 1021. Uh, I think, what did Chris say, in 2000? So I would have been 14 and likely heard it for the first time around 15, 16. And it's really an incredible record. It's super heavy. It's... uh, hardcore metalcore record with some really beautiful melodic parts and to me was a really mature record. And I say that in this conversation, but when I say that, I mean bands develop over time, obviously. And often in that physical maturation process and as they hone their skills and as their craft improves, they'll release like a legacy record. Uh, and, and it's usually not when they're 21 years old, when they're 20 years old. But they wrote this record when they were quite young and it had a, a great impact on the Long Island scene and on the greater hardcore and metal scene. I am I was thinking while we were talking that I was really lucky to grow up where I did. Because my access to bands and to shows and to just like constant music was so great. I'm like hyper aware of this when I'm traveling. When I was living in Jakarta for a bit there, uh, Judge, a New York hardcore band, played in the southern part of Jakarta. The name is escaping me now. Galang? No, I think that's in the west. But anyway, um, and kids were just like, kids were pumped. 
it's awesome seeing touring bands overseas. And if if there is a Southeast Asian like tour circuit, Jakarta is a bigger city where bands would play and also Singapore. But kids will fly like out of their country to go see a band because that's their only choice to see a touring band or, you know, a band from the States that they know about. Even uh, Brian, who was a guest on this episode and plays in like, uh, in, in this episode, on this podcast and plays in pop punk bands, like there's, there's no touring bands in Brunei. Well, there's no music in general in Brunei, but he has to go into to Malaysia to catch a band. And there are places like that in the States too, not necessarily that you have to fly to a city, but you might have to make a three, four hour drive to go see bands. And so I was really fortunate to have access. Either I would hop on the LIRR or you'd have like an older older brother of a friend or your parents would drive you to a show. We could go every weekend. And Sky Came Falling was one of those bands that I really had a great affinity for. And so it's been great to revisit my youth and to talk to these incredible musicians and, and people from the world of punk and hardcore and I'm really grateful that that Chris did this conversation with me. So like I said, go to the show notes for this episode and you will find some really great music and a link to uh, various social media platforms and websites for the bands that he's been in. I'm going to play a song for you here that will lead us into the conversation. This is the song Laura Palmer and this is off of 1021 by Sky Came Falling. So I hope you enjoy this one and you enjoy the conversation.
Again, thanks for doing this. I know it's not like a, a music-themed podcast per se or even something that's like strictly about punk and hardcore music, and so I kind of slip these episodes in when I can. Um, and I, in a way, I'm making up for lost time. I think like when I was, when I was younger, as accessible as like, I guess, bands were like in the Long Island scene or even in like underground music in general, I wasn't very social. Uh, but we do have, I think, people that intersect in our lives and even like in, in, in bands that you've uh, been in and are in. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you and, and meet you for the first time. So thanks, man. Yeah, no, for sure. Thanks for, thanks for asking. I'm not that interesting. So I was kind of, I was a little surprised. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to build out like a timeline here, but you, you have to, and I'm going to do, I do this a lot, but like, I'm, I'm going to look at a lot of what you've done through the lens of like one album and it's not to diminish anything else, but it's sort of, it's what I kind of like had a relationship with. Um, and, and that record is 1021. Like you, you must look back and, and look at that record as something special, no? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, I think certainly it, uh, 
I look back on it. I think there was a lot that went into it. You know what I'm saying? So like from the, from the sense of like writing and recording and all of those various things that come with it. I think, you know, from, from an insider perspective, I think there was a lot that we put into that. I think it was ultimately something that was probably uh, pretty ambitious at the time for us. Um, but it was also kind of like a new era for the bands as well. So, you know, I certainly think it, it has its a place and it, it has a place and a time, you know what I'm saying? Like, as far as like that, uh, as far as like in my own life, I definitely think mm. that, um, there was a lot to that record, especially, you know, we'll get into like, you know, as far as like the, the pieces that made that record kind of come together. Um, so I look back on it as far as like from a personal perspective, for sure. You know, I, I definitely think that there's, uh, you know, I, I won't lie by saying that I'm very surprised that people still like, like listen to the band and reach out to the band and, um, ask us to play shows and stuff like that. It's still pretty surprising to me that like how, uh, how that sort of to some degree legacy is kind of, uh, you know, kept on, but, um, mm. yeah, it's been, I never would have imagined, you know, 20 something years later, people would be like, Hey, do you want to, you know, <laughs> do you want to talk about that record on my podcast? So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I've been building out, you know, notes for this, for this episode and, Again, I'm kind of breaking the timeline that I thought I would do, but um, those two like kind of last shows at the local seven, I was 16 years old and I'm about to be 35. And when I think about (laughs) how that was 20 years ago, that is really a a frightening thing. Um, Yeah. But you, so you were born and raised on Long Island? Yeah, I was... um well, I was born in Queens, uh, and then my parents moved to Williston Park, uh, which is right by Mineola in Nassau County, um, when I was in kindergarten going into first grade. Predating your interest in heavy music or punk and hardcore, was there a lot of music being played at home when you were a kid? Um, yeah, so my dad had a lot of records when I was younger. I was I was pretty fascinated. I think a lot of kids are by like the record player. Um, CDs were out, uh, I think at the time, but they were probably very expensive. And then, um, you know, we had a lot of tapes, but the record player was kind of this like off limits thing for me. So like, you know, I wasn't allowed to put on my own record if I wanted to, but my dad was really into some of the heavier music, like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and some of the weirder stuff that the Beatles was doing, um, you know, like white album and and Sergeant Peppers and and that stuff. But, um, my mother was actually really into, uh, like the earlier Beatles and like doo-wop and Carly Simon and the mamas and the papas. So, and my mom actually at one point when she was younger, uh, was, a was, uh, had gone to school to be a, to, for, um, singing lessons. Uh, so she had kind of had aspirations to, to be a singer. So music was always there. Um, and I always loved, you know, at the time I didn't realize how much those records that my parents were listening to was really kind of shaping my, mm. my interest in music. Um, but yeah, they, they, and it's also interesting because I have a brother who probably couldn't care less if music, um, if music actually fell off the face of the earth, I'm not sure my brother would actually realize until like a baseball player, uh, or a, uh, some, someone in sports didn't have a song to come out to, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is interesting. I've always found that really interesting as well, but yeah, I mean that, that type of music actually really shaped who I was and, and kind of got me interested in, in music in general, right? Like 
I think there was something magical about an LP as well because of the fact that it had that larger uh, album cover and artwork and you had the ability to do the fold outs with some of the records that were out there as far as like not only the gate folds but also the inserts. So that was actually really interesting to me as well just because of the larger format I think was 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 quite interesting. This is probably pretty strange, but uh, I had a, a similar upbringing and like my dad had sort of like the wall of records. I, re- I remember the smell because it was always down in the yeah. basement and like the, I guess, I don't know if like the, the sleeves would get like a little musty, but like I can remember my dad popping on records and just like the smell of the records, which is really weird, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I get that for sure when I'm digging through like a re- an old record store and I can it kind of kicks back of all of those records that my parents were like putting in the basement somewhere because over the years, that's sort of where they ended up. Right. Yeah. Uh, That definitely has a familiar, a familiar smell for sure. What was your, your entryway into the world of like heavy music and and punk and hardcore stuff? Um, So I think when I was maybe in fifth grade, I was watching a lot of MTV uh, and I remember seeing Morrissey uh, had every uh, every day is like Sunday. His solo record had come out. I had no idea who Morrissey was. I didn't know he was like in the Smiths or anything like that. And I remember the Cure having Love Song, and I remember REM, Orange Crush. It was all around the same time that that sort of college indie music uh, was was appealing to me. Before that, I think for the most part, I remember liking bands like Skid Row and Cinderella and bands that had ballads because i think the power ballad was like a big thing i was never really into the heavier sides of those bands believe it or not um but listening to some of that indie stuff really is what like got me into saying like oh i kind of like this style of music but i didn't know that it was a style i wasn't sure you know what it was all about so uh eventually eventually from there i started nirvana it broke in when i was maybe in seventh grade i think that might make sense or ninth grade somewhere in there nirvana broke and that's where i realized pretty quickly that there was more than just the bands that were on the radio um simply because or more than just the bands that were on mtv simply because kirk cobain i think had a really good habit of um, telling people in his interviews, the other bands that you should be listening to. And that's how I discovered bands like Dinosaur Jr. That's how I discovered Shonen Knife, uh, Urge Overkill, a lot of those bands, Big Black. Uh, and I would actually look up all of those bands to try to find any information that I could. So I was writing to labels like Sub Pop. I was writing to labels like Touch and Go. I was trying to get catalogs of like all of these underground bands that might possibly have existed. Um, and I was getting those catalogs back and I was actually pretty fortunate that my father owned a diner that was next door to a record store and they had a pretty large like phone book catalog of one of the one stops that they used to be able to mail like to special order records for me. So I would go in there with like all the money that I made working for my parents. And, um, I would tell them like, I want this particular record. And then about a week or two later, they would call me back and say, oh, your record came in. And I think I was spending like $25 for, for a CD or for a tape at the time. But um, that was really my first, like really getting entrenched and uh, in bands that were, you know, I wouldn't even say on the heavier side, but just like a scene that had existed and you know, outside of what mainstream music really was, right? Because 
you know, bands like Nine Inch Nails and bands like Metallica uh, were the bands that you know, I'd grown up listening to because they were in regular rotation. Uh, so I really just thought that that's sort of what and how music came up. So to kind of understand that there was actually a whole scene out there of bands that were playing regularly, that weren't on TV, that maybe didn't have a record deal, uh, I actually thought was was like really interesting. And um, from there, one of my friends from high school, uh, her brother and her sister used to go to a venue in Mineola called The Angle, uh, where a lot of the bands that were uh, from Long Island would play. So Yuppicide, uh, Silent Majority, Wheelchair, Neglect, uh, all, of, all of those bands were playing there. And so they would bring back like records that either those bands had put out or tapes and her and I would listen to those bands and I'd be like, who are, you know, so eventually uh, when I was old enough, I would start to go to, you know, I'd find out oh, this show was happening and we'd go with like her brother or her sister. Uh, we'd go together. And I think uh, Northport Pipeline was probably the, the earlier venue I remember going to, to see, I think it was VOD had played the loyal to none uh, record release show with mouthpiece and that was like really my first first show that i recall that i was there for like a band like i was there to see vod uh so that's kind of how i started to get into that and then just continue to go to shows from from then on i said to myself before i was doing this i'm like he's going to mention vod and i say that because everybody like you can go back and listen to every musician i've had on here whether i'm like revisiting a record from my youth or it's, you know, it's someone in a current band now and I'm like, you know, what was an early influence for you? And they all say VOD. Yeah, VOD, there was something about VOD. I mean, their musicianship was kind of like no other, right? I think a lot of the other bands, you know, to some degree, I think they were kind of light years ahead, right? Like they were a band that uh, technically, I think was just, completely different from the other bands that I, that I had remembered, uh, back then. Uh, and there was just something about it. They were just so proficient. Um, and it was really strange. Like a lot of people, VOD was like the band that like in my high school, we had kids that were not punk or hardcore kids that were like new of VOD. Um, so I also found that kind of interesting that they sort of had transcended some of like the punk and hardcore friends that I had, uh, that were actually, you know, guys that were like listening to them while they were at football practice and things like that. So I actually also thought that was, uh, that was pretty interesting, but yeah, I just remember the first time hearing them and just being like, I want to sound like that guy, mm. <laughs> like how that guy screams. That's how I want to sound. Uh, just because and live, they were, they were absolutely incredible. So, um, yeah. Were you in, um, in a band before you were in sky came falling and like the iterations of, of sky came falling? Uh, yeah, so I was in a band, so I was in a high school band that played Nirvana covers, ironically. Um, and then I formed another band that was our first attempt at like being sort of the, the hardcore genre, uh, which was with some friends from high school. And that band eventually evolved into a band called Abstain. And Abstain was a band that we probably, I mean, if going back, we probably sounded exactly like VOD, uh, just a poor man's VOD. 
And that was really what we were going for. And we ended up playing a show with a band called Suspect Seven. And Suspect Seven was Cameron and John's band uh, from Sky King Falling. So we shared, uh, we played a show together and then eventually Abstain had dissolved and Suspect Seven was on the verge of dissolving. And we eventually decided that it would be a good idea to do a side project with myself singing and John playing guitar. And we originally were entitled uh, Jedi Mind Trick, believe it or not. And we had a different drummer. We had a different guitar player. We had a different bass player. So it was John and myself. And then Cameron eventually joined. And that really was the first iteration of, of Sky King Falling for me. Some people might think this is like a cringy question because, you know, in in the world of punk music, a lot of singers just pick up a mic and the, the first sounds they make are like their sound. You have a really distinct, um, it's almost like a bark, man. Like you have a really distinct voice and a really distinct scream. Um, is that just natural or is that like something that you developed over time? Yes. So it, it's funny because the first band I was playing in Nirvana had very, Nirvana had a few heavier songs, uh, which were on like in utero and the band I was playing in actually was playing those covers. Um, so what I was actually trying to do was just emulate what, uh, Kurt Cobain was doing on those tracks, but he always had kind of like that raspy mm. scream that kind of had some, uh, it had some melody to it. And so really I was trying to imitate what he was doing and I wasn't successful, but at some point in time, uh, in trying to do that, my voice sort of found that scream that I eventually developed. And to be totally honest with you, I don't know where it came from. I don't know how I'm able to do it. Um, a lot of folks, I, I certainly wish I could do other things. Like, you know, there's other bands that I really admire their singers and what they do and how they're able to do that. Uh, but over the years, it's just sort of evolved and changed. And in some of the later stuff that I was doing, it's gotten deeper over time, but I've never been one to take lessons or practice or, you know, try anything to, to help. I mean, usually if I don't scream for a period of time, uh, it starts to, it takes a little while to get it going. And then once it kind of goes with practice, it, it usually comes back. And then, uh, there, there's been a few times where I've been nervous like the, one of the last reunion shows we played, like I just couldn't get my voice going. Really? And I was like, oh no, this is going to be the, this is going to be it. Like I'm going to lose it. It's going to be gone forever. And uh, then eventually it came back before the show, fortunately. But um, yeah, usually when I'd be like on a, you know, if I was in a band that had done, that was doing like a weekend and we hadn't practiced for several weeks and we ended up playing like three shows in a row by the second show, I'd lose my voice and I would have to, you know, be drinking tea and singer saving grace and all of the usual uh things that a lot of uh, vocalists turn to, to, to try to keep their voice going. Do you remember the first show that you guys played? Like, like proper show? Um, I remember the, so I remember the very first show we played. And then I remember the very first show we played wasn't actually a proper show. We, our drummer Parker had booked a show at a VFW hall in Massapequa that his father was a member of. Uh, and tension played motive played. Those are the two bands that come and then fall victim played fall victim was, um, Cameron's brother, Andrew's band. And we jumped on the show 
I think a couple days before we had three songs ready. We played them. Uh, that show, actually, somebody just, one of our friends, Rob, actually had uh, converted that over and put it up on YouTube. So we ended up playing three songs at that show. And then I think our second show, which was our real show that we had, that we had uh, been asked to play was with, I remember it being with Shutdown and Strong Arm was supposed to play or Shy Lude was supposed to play. One of those two was supposed to play. I actually think both. And neither of them showed up. Uh, they had can't, I think the tour had ended up getting canceled. And I just remember we were absolutely terrible at that show. There were many folks there. Um, we did not play well. So I think that's what I recall our second show being. I could be wrong, but it definitely was the first show after we recorded the demo. But I'm fairly, I just remember not playing well. And I remember being really, really disappointed uh, at what I thought expected to be not only a good turnout, but also like a show that like, I, you know, have great memories about because, you know, I remember being introduced to Shia Lude and thinking it was going to be like, you know, one of those great shows. And, and it definitely turned out not to be. You're mentioning a lot of like really influential bands. Um, so if people are listening, haven't heard of them, like the ones that are from Long Island in New York, like I mentioned with VOD, they're like, you know, a, a lot of your favorite bands, favorite bands, right? Um, and we're very, very influential in New York and outside of New York. And then there's sort of like the next wave or generation of bands that even gained like national prominence, right? Like like bands like Glassjaw or, or Brand New or Taking Back Sunday all came out of Long Island. Um, do you ever get a sense of like why that might be? Because they're they're similar to like food deserts. There there's like music deserts all over the place where like kids don't have local scenes and have to drive three hours or are are very fortunate if even like a touring band comes through. Do you ever like think about or have a sense of why so much creativity came out of Long Island? I I definitely think that I mean it's tough to pin down. It's certainly a great question. Um, you know, one of the things I've always thought about was not only how some of the bands sounded similar at the time, right? Like in terms of like riffs and uh, music that was sort of borrowed from other bands and bands influencing other bands. But there was also like a wide variety of, of the, of genres here from, especially when I first uh, started going to shows, I remember just, you know, I'd see a band like, you know, inside would be playing with, you know, a band like VOD, which would be playing with a band like, Style Majority or Still Suit or, you know, Three Ton Bridge and just various bands of various different uh, styles. And, you know, I don't know. I think there's something about the fact that like being in a suburb that's as close and tightly knit as it is, right? Like Long Island's not a very big place, but it's, it's that suburban sprawl to a degree, right? Like meaning you're not, you know, back maybe when I was younger, you'd get past 110 and it seemed like there were a lot of farms. But, you know, in particular, I think Nassau County at the time, right, a lot of these, uh, a lot of where these bands came from or even, you know, the early, like the beginning of Suffolk with band, bands that were coming out of like Lindenhurst, you were getting these pockets of bands from like Merrick and bands from Lindenhurst. And I think it really just started with like one or two individuals that started bands and then it just kind of spread from there. Um, especially as infectious as it became with people going to shows and uh, from the different towns. But I think that, you know, for the most part, I think it's, it's pretty, it's incredible because I think I can go back to 
a lot of the bands that I was listening growing up and, and at least to me, uh, even introducing it to new people, a lot of that material still, you know, it still holds, right. It's still very entirely listenable. There's, uh, and, and certainly, uh, you know, sometimes the recording isn't, you know, what we might expect in today's world. But I think that a lot of that energy and, and what was captured on those records, I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, it, it sort of transcends time. Yeah, I grew up in Suffolk. So, um, you know, before before you could drive, like you, you would hope a, a friend's older brother or your parents could drive you to a show. And there were like, yeah, a lot of VFWs, Lindenhurst, Babylon, um, maybe a lot more stuff out in Nassau, but even like uh, there they were shows in Eastport. And if you're a touring band, like that seems oh, almost, yeah. almost crazy, right? That's like a two hour drive from New York city, but like bands would get booked and, and kids would show up and kids would go wild. I, I definitely think it's something about that suburbia aspect. Like what are you going to do as a, as a teenager is like hang out in someone's basement or like we would hang out in like parking lots, <laughs> which is not yeah, for sure. Very exciting. So yeah, I mean, we had done shows for a little while. There was a place uh, out in Greenport that we were doing shows, yeah. and I think we ended up with like something like two hundred kids uh, had come out to a show that we had booked there, and it was really interesting because of the fact that they just knew something was happening, and kids had nothing to do, like you said, right? So they were just like, "Oh, you know what? Like, I heard there's a show in town. There's some bands playing. Let's go check it out." Uh, and I think we ended up having something like two or two, 200 or 250 kids show up to a show at one time. And like I said, I mean, there were people that were traveling out that way from Suffolk and Nassau to go play shows out, out there. And we were, you know, we were doing shows that far out East, but again, there was, there was a scene, there were people that there were bands that came from out of there. Uh, at the time, I think Monument Bastard War were the two that were, that were, um, and even Trip Face was not, yeah, Trip Face was from out there, and so was Grid. So there were a lot of bands from that far out east at the time that were, you know, traveling into Nassau, and then they started to, uh, there started to kind of be a groundswell out in those local areas, and then bands started to play out there. So it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I could definitely say that there were weekends that I was going to two shows, right? There'd be a show on a Friday and a show on a Saturday, and you'd be like, oh, this is great. Yeah. And there was no shortage of venues. So... Yeah, and for people to understand, if, if again, if you weren't part of it, it it's kind of like Peter Pan. It, it's like kids doing things for kids. You know, if uh, if you don't have an all ages venue, uh, a warehouse, a basement, a VFW hall that becomes your venue for for everyone to go to, and it was a really special thing. Um, it probably still is a really special thing. I'm just not a teenager anymore, and I and I don't know what teenagers are doing, but. Um, yeah, I, I look back at it with, with a lot of fondness. Um, are there, are there, if I asked you um, about a particularly memorable show that you played, do, does anything come to mind like right away? Uh, I think that we, there was definitely one show. We, uh, we played at Deja One, uh, which was a venue not far away from where I lived in Mineola at the time. Uh, and it was our record release show for the first EP uh, that, and I remember we had, we had this whole idea. We were going to do, we were going to do lights. Uh, we were going to, 
have spoken word in between. We were all going to wear like a similar, a similar outfit. We were going to have our friends on stage with us. Each were going to kind of play a different part of being on stage with us at the time. It was pretty ambitious. And the video recently, um, we recently found the video of the show and it definitely, it definitely was not as, uh, it didn't correspond as well to, to what the image was. Uh, I don't think we, we pulled it off quite as well as my memory, uh, may have served, but, um, I think that show was with day in the life, uh, glass show was supposed to play, but didn't end up playing, uh, a day for honey. But I just, at the time, it was really the first show that I remember, like people were there for us specifically. They knew we had the record coming out. Um, I think we had only received something like 50 copies and people bought all the records before we even played that day. So it was that, that really stuck with me as far as like, wait, we're, we're actually, people actually like this, right? Like people are into the, to, into the bands and, um, uh, there was a label that was willing to, to invest in us at the time as well, which was good life. And so I think from, for me, that rec, that show probably served as like the one that really started to make me think like, Oh, you know, we can, we can do this. Like we can maybe be a full-time touring band and continue to play out and, um, you know, maybe make something happen of, of what we, of, of what started off as just a small side project. Did you have non-musical influences? Because, um, again, and I'll, I'll get to 1021, but I, I think the sound is really unique and your your lyrics are like really kind of poetic when compared with maybe lyrics for other bands. Um, like, were you were you pulling influence from, from, from books, from film or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I was reading a lot of uh, J.D. Salinger, uh, which we ended up using for the cover text for the record. Uh, Herman Hess, I was reading a lot of Kafka, Kerouac, Plath. So a lot of the things that I think most uh, of our of our generation, right? Like we had to read some of those some of those books uh, in high school, and I really started to dig deeper into some of those authors. Um, but I think you know more so. It was also, you know, one of the things that, that I, I try to stress about, you know, the early part of the band and, and our influences as well is that, you know, being coming from Long Island, I think we, we all led a pretty secluded uh, life, right? Like the city was, was within arm's length from most of where we grew up. Um, however, you know, going there was like, sort of a really interesting experience, right? You'd, you'd, you'd see all these different people that you were normally not exposed to on a regular basis. Growing up on Long Island, I think we're all, the majority of the towns are upper middle class. I think that everything, I know especially, you know, my parents tried to shield me from a lot of the things that were happening in the world and the bad things that were happening in the world. And when you kind of come into your own at like 18, 19, and you go to college for the first time and you get out from under your parents' roof, you're, you're just trying to understand the world that's around you, trying to fit in, trying to, um, you know, also just uh, sort of find your place and find your people as well. And you start to dabble in a lot of different things, right? So I started to get really like interested in just religion in general. I think that some of the early part of the EP was um, some of the religious 
influences that, you know, or just some of the dabbling that I was going through to just try to understand. I didn't grow up very religious. Uh, so I'd felt like bands, I was actually, you know, interested in bands like Shelter and got me interested in, you know, in Krishna and Buddhism. And then reading things like Herman Hesse and Siddhartha had made me realize like, oh, you know, maybe I started to open up my eyes a little bit more to that. Uh, and then Christianity as well and Greek Orthodox and uh, growing up with things like even the Greek myths that my father used to tell me when I was younger and the stories that he would tell me. So there was a lot of, of that that I think non-musical influences, not just writers and not just poets, but I think that aspect of those years and, and growing up and uh, being at that age where you know, you just really were trying to find out who you were and, and what your place was, I think really played a large part in, in the band and the themes that we had mm. at the time. You mentioned something before about writing to labels. I am, um, we're of like the same generation in terms of like <laughs> of birth, but I'm like uh, a generation behind you in terms of music, I think on Long Island. So I entered high school in 2000. So bands I was really excited to see that were local were like On the Might of Princes, um, The Backup Plan. Uh, kids used to go really crazy for Strong Point. Um, those are bands I look back at very fondly. But I can distinctly remember it was like right, this era is like right before like file sharing hit, right? And now we have... Right. We have algorithms, right? Like you go onto Spotify and it's like, you like this band, here's five more bands. At that time, it would be somebody tells you about a band or <laughs> this cute girl like mentions a record or like you're flipping through someone's distro. And my dad used to drive me out to a friend's house in Babylon and he had grown up in Lindenhurst. And so he would always take me to uh, Looney Tunes. And when, when you're 14, 15 and you're like bussing tables and you're not making a lot of money, you don't have a lot of money. And so your whatever it was, 10 or $15 CD is like, <laughs> it's an economic choice, but it's a really important one because it's like, this is the one CD I could buy until I get paid next or whatever it is. Um, and I remember buying 1021 at Looney Tunes and really being blown away and not even like really understanding like why I was blown away but now like with some more years behind me and like a more trained ear and understanding of these things I can oh wow like that production value is like really high um you know especially for the time or for being like a local band because there's always tons of local bands that never quite make it on like a tour circuit or whatever um and also like the ingenuity behind it like the really soft, beautiful piano parts into like, it's just really gruff vocals. Um, I, I'm, I'm really curious about the record because I think that it was a really mature record, but I have the perception that you were maybe still quite young when you wrote it. So uh, really interested in like the process and how long it took um, and sort of like the thought that you all put into to the record. Sure. Yeah. So I think that if I'm not mistaken, the record came out in 2000 or 2001. Uh, I think it's 2000. So our first EP came out in 1998. So at that time I was, um, at that time I was 20. And so I was 22 by the time that uh, 1021 had come out. 
Um, other members of the band were actually younger. So myself, John and Parker are all the same age. Uh, and then Cameron's a year younger than us. And Matt, our bass player who wrote the record with us was actually two years younger than us. Um, so he, at that time, I mean, when he first did a tour with us and was first playing with us, he was, I believe he was 14 or 15. Um, and the rest of us were still, were like just, uh, had just graduated high school when the band had, um, had formed. Um, I think that we had written the record after, so we didn't do a lot of touring for the first EP, uh, simply because again, we were younger, we had younger members, we were doing uh, like a week here and there where we could. Um, but for the most part, we had some folks that were in college. Some of the guys were in college at the time. Um, and so we were practicing pretty regularly. I think most weekends we were practicing. And the first song we wrote for that record was uh, Healing Yesteryear. So I think that that was a song that actually came out on a comp before it came out on the record, actually a different version of that song was on a comp, uh, which was for ferret records, which was called choice cuts. It was a trust kill ferret, uh, comp. And, uh, we had recorded that song and I know it was different, like as far as like genre wise from what we had originally, uh, been doing on the EP and the sound that we had sort of found on the EP. Um, and I think after that, it was probably with Paper Wings and then Laura Palmer. And personally, I think that those, it started to become a little bit more groovy, I guess, is like a kind of odd way to say it. But there was a lot more groove to the music that we were playing. It was a little bit less like aggressive and fast as the first EP was. And I think those two songs set the tone for really the rest of the record. Um Although, you know what, now that I think about it, so believe it or not, we actually always numbered our songs. So we numbered them in the order that we had written them because we always would, no one really remembered the titles of the songs that we were, <laughs> that we'd play. So when people would get our set list, it'd be like one, five, seven. Um, so nine was actually Porcelain Heart Promises, which came before Healing Yesteryear. So the first song we actually wrote was Porcelain Heart Promises. And then the second song was Healing Yesteryear. Then it was with Paper Wings and Laura Palmer. How long did the whole writing process take? I think it took us a year. Um, I certainly think longer than it should have taken us. I think it probably took us a year, probably a year to a year and a half. I remember John, our guitar player, had broken um, had broken a bone and wasn't able to play guitar. It was his clavicle, I believe. And so we ended up taking a little bit of a break. So we sort of had written the record in two blocks. The first block of the record is the songs that I'm referring to the, the earlier ones. I think that nothing was a part of that, which were the, the sort of opening songs on the record. I think everything after uh, porcelain heart promises actually on that record. So songs like shallow, like sand, um, the truth machine and ocean apart, which is the latter part of the record those songs were written almost within the last two months before we went into the studio. So it's like you have two different eras of songwriting on that record. The initial first half was what we wrote directly after the EP. And then 
there was that little break in the middle of there. And then shortly before we went into the studio, we had that little, that other batch of songs that we ended up. And I know this specifically because I didn't have lyrics for those songs by the time we even entered the studio. So I was still working out the lyrics and the patterns to those songs that were already recorded. I mean, it, it, that sounds crazy to me, especially considering how young you guys are. Like when I say that the album is a mature album, I mean, any, any song in any genre has a formula. Um, but, you know, th there, there's a formula to, to heavy songs that, you know, you can play and kids will go nuts and they'll have a good time. Uh, but like I said, like a, a, a two minute, three minute piano intro and two minute piano outro to a song um, was something that I hadn't heard at the time. Um, and I, I just, yeah, I think that's incredible what a mature sounding record that was considering you guys were so young. Did, did like industry, I don't know if that's even the word you'd use, but like, did you get more attention from like even, even larger labels? Cause I, at the time, Trusco was still, um, was, I mean, a bigger label, but not like they were, they were a subsidiary eventually for like a major label. Right. But, um, yeah, at the time, yeah. Did, were you getting like major label attention? Not really. I mean, I think that, um, we had talked, you know, we were on ferret, uh, and that record come out on ferret trust kill to me was sort of like ferrets big brother, I guess would be the best word. Cause they had a couple of like records that had exploded and ferret was like just behind them with some of the bands that would later become bigger, like from on the ashes, every time I die, uh, martyr AD bands like that, that were some of our peers uh, that were on the label as well. Um, the only real interest that I remember us getting was victory. Um, at the time who some of our friends were on victory as well. So, you know, we had done a tour with Thursday, um, and we had stopped over at the victory offices and we had met Tony and, um, you know, they'd given us some free stuff and victory was a huge label of with bands that, uh, you know, were bands that we all had grown up listening to earth crisis, Snapcase, strife, um, et cetera. So they were definitely the heavyweight as far as hardcore was concerned. Uh, that was really the only label that I think we had talked to, um, and had conversations with about actively signing with, uh, and ultimately that didn't come to be, but, um, I don't think there was really much more, much more than that. Uh, we did have, you know, promises to do another record with Barrett. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we, we did have a contract with him to, to actually release one more record. Um, but he ended up losing the contract uh, and it was never, it, it was never actually surfaced. And um, by that point, by the time we had considered about like leaving the label and doing something else, we were at the end of the band regardless. Did you have more music written though when the last EP came out? Cause if I'm remembering correctly, I, I saw that as like, like the prelude to, of a full LP and like, you know, even like those two songs would be on it. Um, no. So believe it or not, those two songs that we had written. So there were two songs we had written for 1021 that didn't make the record. Um, the first one was a song that we just called Vietnam, uh, that never made the record. We recorded the music 
but we had some studio issues at the time of recording 1021. That record's actually recorded at two different studios uh, simply because of the fact that we moved studios because of some financial issues that had occurred. Like uh, the studio had kind of told us it was one rate and it ended up being another rate and they wouldn't budge as far as what the, the cost was. Um, and they were charging us tax on top of it. And we were like, we can't afford all of this. We factored the number of days we would get based on the rate and not having tax on our, on our recording costs. And we ended up shifting uh, to a different studio. So we actually had to bounce the songs that were recorded on, um, I think it was either we went from DA88 to ADAT or vice versa. Uh, so we had to find a studio that was able to do the conversion for us. And one of the songs, which was Vietnam, had a middle guitar part that didn't end up getting converted properly. So we ended up losing that portion. And we never had vocal patterns to it. We never had lyrics to it. We ended up leaving that song off the record. The second song was a song called Love Letter Bomb. And that song was parts of that song were actually taken for the first song on the last EP called Thera. There are parts of that song that were what Love Letter Bomb was. There's a demo recording of Love Letter Bomb somewhere that I think I lost over time. Um, at one point it was up on MySpace, I remember, but uh, unfortunately it's not there anymore. But um, the those are the two songs we did have we ended up writing the other two and that EP was meant to be more of a shopping it to label to see what was out there to see if we could possibly get a record deal. Um, I think it was a genre wise. It was a little bit of a shift as well based on the music that we yeah. were playing or the bands we were listening to at the time. Uh, I also look at it as kind of a, I wouldn't necessarily, it's not that I don't, it's not that I dislike it. I just think that it wasn't coming from the right place is probably the best way that I could say it. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of as much heart as I really would have wanted to say should have been in that, uh, in those two songs. I think we really more were trying to play something that we thought might please other people mm. is the best way that I could put that. I don't know if like the bands that really popped in that era like, I don't know how the financial situation works. Like, I don't know if they made long-lasting, life-changing money. Um, uh, you know, some some heavier bands from that time that really had, like, crossover appeal and, uh, you know, were on whatever, MTV and stuff like that, like Poison the Well. Like, these are bands that got pretty big. Um, but again, like, I'm, I'll, I'll take it back to 1021. Like, this is a record to me that like why wouldn't that why wouldn't that have popped like that to me is such a strong record that it should have and and I wonder like it maybe there's like a parallel with VOD where it's like you guys maybe hit right before that explosion like the explosion maybe was like 2004ish when bands from Long Island and 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 heavier bands like really started crossing over into this sort of like mainstream consciousness. Do you ever think that maybe it, it just hit a bit too early? I think it's hard to say, right? Because I think that a record like opposite of December came out, if I'm not mistaken, just before 1021. And that record made a pretty large impact 
Uh, and then shortly thereafter, you had a record like Too Bad You're Beautiful mm-hmm. by From On the Ashes, which had a really big impact. I don't know. It's, it's difficult to say, you know, why perhaps it didn't find the appeal that maybe some folks, um, you know, think it should have. I certainly think, you know, from my perspective, somewhere along the lines, I think we ended up somewhere near 10,000 CDs, which to me at the time was like, beyond my wildest dreams, yeah. right? The number of records, like the fact that we had sold 10,000 um, was a pretty big deal. Uh, I think later, you know, things like sound scan and how many records were being scanned and how many records were, were selling per week started to become a little bit bigger, right? Hot Topics started to get, you know, involved there um, with some of those numbers and having your t-shirt and Hot Topic and things like that. So we, the tail end of the band kind of caught that little, that cusp. And I think that, by catching that, I think it, it definitely helped propel the band longer than we probably would have gone um, simply because of things like Warped Tour and, like I said, Hot Topic, taking our T-shirts and our CDs and uh, and the bands that we were able to tour with, which were bigger at the time as well. I don't know, though. I, I don't think that there was any particular reason why you know, certain bands caught on and, and, and we didn't. I mean... I can go back and listen to all of those records, right? Mm-hmm. And say like, I know why that record did as well as it, as, as it did, right? Listening to opposite December clearly, you know, you could pick out reasons. I don't know. I think that, you know, personally from, from my perspective, like I'd mentioned earlier uh, when we were talking, you know, having some personal involvement in it, I think it's, it's a little bit different because I, I look at it more from the inside than I do from the outside. Um, so when I'd listen back on those songs, you know, I, I more so hear like, Ooh, you know, my voice cracked there, or I remember having such a hard time recording that particular part. So I don't necessarily know if I hear it for the full body that maybe other folks hear it, hear it for. Um, but I do think, right. Like there's that record is, it's different in the sense that like the people that had first got into us for our EP and what we had sounded like then, I think it's, it's a very different sounding record. I think there's times that the tempo's slower um, on that record than we played live. And then there's other times that I think, I mean, we were writing five or six minute songs. And like you said, with three minute piano outros on top of it. Um, so I think that there's something to be said there, right? Like from a, from the attention span perspective of maybe even some of the folks that were, that were listening to it at the time as well. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a lot of cobwebs in my brain, so uh, this may be hazy, and I'll let you maybe correct my memory of this, but um, I, I get like venues and years and the specific bands that played on specific bills or specific shows mixed up. But I can, so if if I'm ever like shooting the shit with my friends and we're talking about shows from, from our youth, uh, one of the, one of my favorites and the craziest was, was those like, uh, you know, like kind of last shows at the local seven. So there were two local sevens, if I have this right. <laughs> and the first one is where you guys played those shows. And it had from the yeah. stage to the back wall was a really short distance, um, like the direct, like parallel wall. But then the room was long from side to side. Hopefully people can yeah, get it. Yeah, it was definitely wider than it was deep. Yeah, yeah kind of a strange uh, layout. And it was a warehouse, like in the midst of a bunch of other warehouses. Um, 
I don't know if it was like first show to second show. And you, you can tell me if I'm right about this. I remember getting a flyer and I think the flyer said that the band that was playing was to forever embrace the sun. Does that sound right? So, (laughs) yeah. So actually we booked, we booked the first show. We had booked the shows before we knew we were breaking up. And I think we had booked the second one first. So the one that happened later, we ended up booking first. And then if I'm not mistaken, our friend had asked us, Hey, can you guys play this other show? And we wanted to play it, but we didn't want to take away from the draw of the other show that we were playing possibly a week or two later. Um, so what we decided to do was let's book ourselves under a different name and let's play the entire EP. Uh, so we'll play the EP in its entirety uh, from start to finish. And what ended up happening was it was kind of strange because we ended up then deciding just a few weeks before that those were going to be our last shows. And so we decided to keep it the way that it was. Um, and funny enough, and I've told this story before, I remember being at that show and uh, I was in the crowd waiting to play and watching the other bands play. And the band before us finished and a girl had said to her, the guy that she was with, I assume it was, they were girlfriend and boyfriend. Um, she was like, Oh, who's on next? And he was like, embrace the sun. And she was like, Oh, are they good? He's like, nah, no, nah, they're not good. I saw them before. <laughs> and I just remember thinking in my head, like you piece of shit. Like, I cannot believe that you're not only like lying about a band that you did not see, but like you're hating on a band that didn't even, that, doesn't even exist. Uh, you know, so I just remember that feeling really at, at something that stuck with me at that time. I was just like, what the heck? But, um, yeah, that ended up being, that's why we booked that show. And that's why we played under that name. The goal was just to not take away from the draw uh, of the next one that we had, which just ended up being our last show. Do you remember who else played that show or both of those shows, I guess? I don't, I should. Um, yeah, I don't recall specifically. I can remember the fo- I can remember the people who booked the show, uh, but less about the bands that played. For some reason, um, I want to say Strong Point played one of them. I want to say On the Mic played one of them. I want to say A Love for Enemies played one. Um, trying to think who else. Those are the bands that I can recall. I think Regarding I played one. Sounds about right, but I don't recall the rest of the of the bill. I th- I think you're right about that because I remember getting like a split sampler from regarding I and on the mic before who they released a record on Revelation that last record I think and it, on the mic released their record on Revelation yeah yeah and it had a song from that and I remember getting it at the local seven because you know you used to just get like sampler CDs and tapes and stuff and. I think it may have been at one of those shows, but yeah, that sounds about right. I, I think regarding, I also had done a show with us in Poughkeepsie because I released regarding I's record on my label at the time. Um, so I remember playing, having them play those two shows with us. One of them being one of these last shows that we played. I just remember like kids hanging from the ceiling, like people just like going mm-hmm. ape shit. 
That, I mean, th- yeah, that, that was a crazy. Show. That was pretty special, huh? Yeah, one of our friends got his uh, got punched in the eye, and I remember him asking me, "He's like, should I get stitches?" And I could see his like uh, the bone of his eye socket. And I was like, "Yes, <sighs> yes, you should get you should get stitches." Um, yeah, I remember. I think it was Smalley that was hanging from the ceiling, actually. And I remember our one friend Paulie actually was uh, had to be on stage because kids were just like all over the place, and that that stage itself was tiny. Again, I didn't know this guy because I was, you know, I was I was a pretty meek uh, teenager. But um, a lot of those local seven shows were were booked by that guy Vince, who had like just this like storied aura around him. Do you remember that guy? Yeah, he was an interesting. Yeah, he was an interesting yeah. character. I used to do because I, I mean, really, at the end of the day, he was the individual who just had the space. Yeah, and then he would just let kids book whatever days they wanted to have bands play. So. Uh, Paulie booked one of those shows. I think Bill Meese from a lot enemies booked another one of those shows, uh, of our last shows. Um, I just always was, you know, Vince, even at the time, right? Like I was skeptical of anybody over a certain age that was primarily spending a lot of their time with teenagers. Um, so I definitely was always a little bit sketched out by him. Uh, however, you know, looking back now, could I say that like, if I was in a position to have a place where young bands could play um, and I had that opportunity to do so, I certainly would open my doors to let, to let bands play. So there's, I don't know what his motives were, uh, but he certainly gave, gave Long Island a, a, a great place. In fact, two great places, even though local, the second local seven was pretty short lived you know, for bands to come and play and, and, I mean, really, that that place was not legal to be doing shows out. Yeah. I mean, if that was certainly a a place where, um, you know, if there were a fire or anything like that, there would have been some some a significant body count for sure. I think it was at the second local seven that I, I don't know if it was him or someone booked Bad Luck Thirteen, which I mean, people might know of like the one of like the I guess the final like Hellfest Hellfest before, and now it's mm-hmm. like a European festival or something. Um, and that obviously went awry, but yeah, I was just thinking like that band was booked in like this giant open warehouse and like was shooting off Roman candles and like that could have been really horrible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think Vince had something to do with, uh, in Massapequa on Broadway, there was a bagel store as well that we did a few shows that a few shows were held at as well. Whoa. Um, and I'm pretty sure that he was the connection there also. So I don't really... He's an interesting guy. I never really got to know him, but uh, certainly unsure of particularly what his motives were for for just allowing kids like us at the time to be able to do those shows. Did you? I think you played the Hellfest that was like the VHS was released about, right? When it was in like a barn. Um, no, I think that was the second year. Okay, we played two years, both. If I'm not, if I recall correctly, we're at the fairgrounds um, in Syracuse. I know one was definitely the time that the Misfits played because we were at Denny's and the Misfits came in Whoa. Uh, in full makeup and everything and like sat down at a Denny's, uh, which was <laughs> quite interesting. And then, you know what? No, the, the other show that we played wasn't at the fairgrounds. The other show we played was at a, almost like a, what's the right word for it? Like one of those like activity centers for kids, like Mm. where 
they have like ball pits and like, um, I'm trying to think here, like trampolines and all of those things. There was a venue like that up in Syracuse, if I'm not mistaken. And the first one we played was there. And the second one we played was at the fairgrounds. Which means then we played three because the third, our last show was at Hellfest. So our like last, last show was at Hellfest, which was another show at the fairgrounds as well. And I think that night, Capri played, I think. That sounds right. And Thursday, I think. Did you enjoy um, doing the Warp Tour? Warp Tour was interesting. I, I certainly enjoyed playing it. Um, Warp Tour was one of those things where I never really understood the mechanics of what went into Warp Tour. Mm. And seeing it from the inside, I think, was really, really fascinating and interesting um, from the sense of like what bands got to eat, right? Catering, um, what bands were on the smaller stages, how they go about picking the bands that play in the particular order that they play in. Uh, also when we were on the tour, uh, and I don't know if this is true, this is just what I'd heard at the time. And there was a band that was doing it. There was always one band that was responsible at the end of the night to host sort of like a barbecue for all the bands. And so they would barbecue like hot dogs and hamburgers. And after the show, all the bands would hang out. Uh, and they would, this one band was responsible for like cooking for all the bands. And the band that was responsible for it the year that we were on Warped Tour was Big D and the Kids Table. <laughs> and they were like a small band at the time. They weren't a band that was like, uh, that had gotten as big as they eventually did. So it was really interesting to kind of see what it takes to keep a tour like that together just simply because of all of the things that go into it from the planning to the transportation, to setting up of the, of the shows in each city that you arrive. We were one of the few bands that was in a van as well. So we were doing our own driving. Most of the bands had tour buses. Uh, so definitely on the West coast, like we felt it. Some of our drives were longer. We were through the mountains. Um, you know, we didn't have the greatest van at the time. So we were having trouble keeping up. Definitely a time where we showed up to a show and the gates were already closed and bands weren't allowed to come in, but we still managed to like get our equipment through a, a gate, stuff like that, that, that we were doing. Um, but it was just cool because there, the, the stage that we played was punkrocks.net had inquired about why there weren't smaller bands playing warp tour. And there were so many great bands that were, that they were into. And if I'm not mistaken, Kevin responded with giving them a stage and having them do all of what it, essentially all of what it took to actually book the bands and, and go from city to city, setting up their stage, setting up their sound, all of it. I've heard too of like, it was a really good opportunity for some bands to move like a a crazy amount of merch. When we did that tour, the used had just come out with their self-titled and we watched the used go from having 15, 20 kids watching them the first night to 200 to a thousand to more. Um, it was fascinating to watch how big that band got while just out on the road with, uh, on board tour. Yeah. That's a weird one that they just hit like they, they hadn't yeah. had like years of playing shows. 
I mean, I don't know much about nope. them, but I do remember when that hit, all of a sudden it hit and they were huge. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was probably the first time that I'd ever really seen a band like just progressively have their crowds get larger and larger every single show, every single city we played. Huh. I, I've kept you for an hour, so I, I won't keep you much longer, but, um, and I, I won't get into, you know, uh, the end of sky came falling or anything like that, but are you still planning on doing shows? Would there ever be music from sky came falling? Um, and are you still doing stuff with divider? Uh, so sky game falling has had a few offers recently. Um, however, just some of us are new parents. Uh, and you know, as I'd mentioned to you, you know, my son currently has some medical, uh, complexities that he's facing that he's, he's outgrowing, but, uh, still kind of have him requiring full-time nursing care and things like that. So right now, you know, we're turning down the majority of those offers if, you know, out of the one or two that have come our way, we've, we've unfortunately had to say no. Um, there's no telling, I think what the future is going to hold. Like as far as like, if, you know, if the right thing came about, uh, right now, Cameron's living in Mexico, Parker and myself and Andrew are on the Island and Matt, our bass player is in North Carolina. So there's also the, the logistics about bringing people here and how long do they have to be here in order to, um, you know, in order to actually make sure that we sound good and, and we could you know, put our set together. Uh, also not playing music, right? So it was a little bit easier before when I was playing with Divider because Divider, I was able to keep my voice kind of going and, and at least like warm, um, but not playing any music right now. I don't know how long it would actually take to get into, uh, to get my voice going again. I'm not going to say no, that it, that it would never happen. I just think that it's probably a little bit more difficult uh, for all of us to get together nowadays during the pandemic, we had actually recorded, um, that song, Vietnam, uh, instrumental, uh, the, the instrumental parts were all done. Uh, I just needed to put vocals to it. Uh, but unfortunately with everything that was going on my son and how long he was in the hospital for, I was never able to actually get to the studio and, and do my end of it. So I, I do feel bad about that. So at some point I'm, I'm probably going to do that. Um, other than that though, I mean, if you really, think about the band's time together, we, we didn't really write a lot of songs and we didn't really, for everything that we had released, I think just, as I mentioned, there were two songs we didn't release that were full song or almost full songs. And then there was one or two that we had played live that we never ended up releasing or recording. Um, but a band that was around from like 1997 until 2003, which is six years, we wrote maybe 20 songs, 22 mm. songs, something like that. So because we were just always on tour and we weren't a band that had the ability to really write while we were on tour. Um, so it's not to say that there won't be new music. I, I would, I would just be, I think it would be harder uh, to do. I think part of what made the band work really well when we were younger was the fact that we'd all, we all could be in a room um, and writing. I think that being a part especially for the type of band that we were and how we sort of kind of came up with our ideas and concepts. I think that being in the room together really is what um, kind of made, kind of made sense for us and, and made some of those songs uh, what they are. 
So again, I wouldn't say no. Cause I, I said no to being, to doing a reunion for years. I was like, we're never going to play a reunion. And then we ended up playing like four. Um, so I definitely, I'm not going to be the person to say, no, we would never do it. I think if the right opportunity came our way and it was the right time, then, then certainly we would. And if, if the right song got written and somebody like Cameron or Andrew came together with, with what that, with the bones of what that song is. And we all heard it for what it, for what it really could be. I, I definitely think that the new music could, could be there. Um, I think right now what I'd love to do is be able to get 1021 on vinyl, but uh, that hasn't come together because we don't have the master any longer. <laughs> so the studio that did the mastering has it on an old format. And so really the only con the only ability to do it would essentially just be to take it off of the CD, which I'm just worried about what the sound quality might be. So we've been kicking around that idea for a little while. Um, as far as dividers concerned, once, uh, that band kind of, it was another band where the members sort of kind of moved in and out of the band at times. And I think that also helped sort of feed the ideas and the creativity of the band. Um, the last change that we had had, which was our bass player and drummer, um, leaving and then being replaced. Our drummer at the Kevin was living in Poughkeepsie. Uh, our bass player was here on Long Island. And then Anthony ended up taking a job where he was away for a you know considerable period of time um, and wasn't back on Long Island as often. And so the band just kind of took, you know, kind of got put on the back burner for a bit. Um, and then my son was born and Anthony ended up moving uh, a little bit further into Westchester. So that's another thing. I mean, personally, like I would, I'd love everything divider did. I would love for that band to, to do something. We had a handful of songs that we were writing toward the end, uh, that we'd never recorded that, that I would love to put on tape. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just never really, uh, the band just kind of fizzled, which is unfortunate, but you know, like things do people's jobs got, you know, hectic people started families, people moving distances. And, and sometimes it felt like if you were having a practice, three months after your last practice, it was like you were relearning everything mm. that you had worked on three months ago, only to then pause for another two months. And then you just felt like you were in the cycle of relearning all of the things and never really finding that rhythm. And that's kind of what I think in the end just didn't make it work. I actually, so I know those guys pretty well. Um, when, when Tim was still in the band, they did like a five week, five week ish tour in 2007. Um, and okay. I, I was just roadie van guy and it was like every possible thing that could go wrong, went wrong. Like basis at the time quit like three days into tour. Yeah, I remember I being, <laughs> being in California and Anthony broke a string and it like sliced his hand open. He's like first song into the set. So like, you know, it's, I look back at it fondly, but likely it was a, a pretty rough experience. But um, yeah, we, we, we share some mutual people. So I think that's kind of cool. But, um, you know. Yeah, no, I love that band. I, I was, uh, they were a band that I actually really loved seeing live. Uh, and then having the opportunity to play with them was like, was pretty next level for me. Well, likely there's a mix of people listening. Um, again, I cover any possible topic on here, largely travel themed. So people who are listening 
and hearing about you for the first time, I'll have links in whatever player, Spotify, whatever, uh, iTunes, Apple, and I'll, I'll give people an opportunity to listen to both bands. Um, and then likely, obviously, there's people listening because it's you and, and they're fans of the music that you've made. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you again. I've been slowly kind of like taking off the, the records that are kind of in, in Tim's personal Hall of Fame here and, and getting to chat with people. And it's, it's always really exciting for me. So uh, it's really kind of you to, to give me the time tonight, um, even though you've got the, the kiddo at oh, home and everything. So, so yeah, thanks a lot, man. No, I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for, for asking. And uh, you know, I'm glad the, the record uh, means as much as it does to you. I, I think that that's, uh, that's really great. That's awesome. All right, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 228 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much for Christopher having this conversation with me. It was great to revisit the past. And if you haven't heard of him or his bands, hopefully you will get into them now. Thanks to all you Voyagers out there for listening. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon.